Well, let's jump into the message today. Over the past couple of weeks, we've heard the, the testimony, the life story of the Apostle Paul as he described the way God's grace worked in his life and in his ministry. And the reason Paul is sharing his testimony with the Galatian people is to refute the teaching and the rumors of this group of people, this group of men known as the Judaizers. It just sounds like a great gang name for 2,000 years ago, right? Like they'd have those jackets on the back, the Judaizers. Sounds like a metal band or something. Their central claim was that to become a Christian man, you needed to be circumcised. The new believers' classes in their churches were rough. I mean, really rough. And to keep your salvation, to maintain it, they said, you had to keep following the Old Testament laws of Moses. Basically, to become a Christian, they said, you needed to start living like a Jew. It was simply another recycled version of works-based salvation, a system which claimed that you could somehow earn and keep your salvation by doing good works. Now, in contrast, the Apostle Paul was teaching just the opposite. He said, no one can earn their salvation. We can only be made right with God, have a relationship with God by placing our faith in Jesus. The Judaizers also spread false rumors about Paul in an attempt to undermine his ministry. They would accuse him of things like not being a legitimate apostle. They would say, yeah, that, that Paul guy, he's not really on the level of those guys in Jerusalem. He's sort of like a lesser apostle, if an apostle at all. In today's study, Paul is going to have a confrontation with the apostle Peter. In fact, Paul is going to correct Peter, and Peter's going to receive it because Paul will be right. And this is going to prove the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship yet again, but more importantly, it will show that a works-based salvation message is hopeless. It's hopeless. Our only hope is Jesus and that's why it's such good news that he loves us, that he loves us. So to understand the context of today's study, you have to remember a few things about believers in the early church who were ethnically Jewish and came from a Jewish cultural background. So you remember that the term Jewish can even be a little bit confusing because to be Jewish is an ethnicity, but it's also a culture. Last week we talked about the fact that there were some ethnic Jews who were not culturally Jewish, they were culturally Greek. They were Hellenist is what it's called. So we're talking now about some of the challenges that were faced by men who were ethnically Jewish and culturally Jewish and then became Christians in the early church. Because they might be the most nationalistic people on earth especially during that time. Nobody loved their country. Nobody loved their ethnicity more than the Jews. It went far beyond patriotism. It went all the way to such an extreme that the inevitable byproduct was actually racism. The Jews had, had generally forgotten by this time in history that the whole reason God had chosen them to be his people was to teach the nations about him. Instead of doing that, over the centuries, they just sort of turned inward, became insular, and only focused on the part of that where God chose them. They left out the whole other part to teach the nations about him. Instead, they just focused on the part that were chosen by God, and they began to teach their children that God only loved Jews, and that the reason other people even existed was, as they would put it, because hell needs kindling. 
One of the most well-known prayers of the day had Jewish men declare, thank you, God, because you know you want to start your day with gratitude. And so a very popular prayer was, thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile, which is a non-Jew, a slave, or a woman. That was one of the most popular prayers of the day among Jewish men. God had given the Jewish people the law, all of his instructions on how to live righteously. If you followed the law perfectly, you would earn salvation. Now the New Testament in the Bible tells us that the whole purpose of the law was to prove to us that none of us can follow the law perfectly. We can't earn salvation. But through the system of of rabbis and, and Pharisees and scribes, by the time Jesus was on the earth, many of them had begun to practically live as though they could actually earn their salvation if they just followed the law strictly enough. The law divided everything in life into two categories. You had clean and unclean. And when it came to people, anyone who was not Jewish, anyone who had not become Jewish, was considered unclean. So imagine now, now imagine the challenges in the early church as Jewish men who were raised this way put their faith in Jesus and are now suddenly lumped together with Gentile men and Gentile women in this new thing called the church and they're told, you're family now. Isn't that great? Can you imagine the the tension this would have created? It's not surprising that God had to do some major work in the hearts of the Jewish apostles in Jerusalem. And it's not surprising that it took decades and many, many slip-ups along the way for the church to start figuring out what it means to actually be one, Jew and Gentile together. So would you write this down? The Jews in the early church had to overcome the nationalism and racism that they had been raised in. They had to overcome the nationalism and racism they had been raised in. Last week, we talked about the events at the Jerusalem Council, that conference that saw Paul and the leaders of the Antioch church journeyed to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and the apostles there because they needed to figure out, it was a big debate in the early church, around the question, do Gentiles need to obey the Old Testament law, the laws of Moses? Do Gentiles need to do things like get circumcised in order to become a Christian and be part of the church? But it'll be helpful for today's study if we go back a couple of years before the Jerusalem Council to a time when Peter was out preaching the gospel across Israel and he received a dramatic revelation from the Lord. He also had an incredible encounter with some Gentiles some non-Jews that completely changed his understanding of how God was interacting with Gentiles in this new church age. So if you would flip with me to Acts 11 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 11 in your Bibles or on your phones. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 11. And we're going to start in verse 1. And we're just going to read through Peter's recounting of these events. Acts chapter 11 verse 1. This is what Acts says. It says, Now the apostles and brethren, the believers, who were in Judea, that's the southern part of Israel around Jerusalem, they heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, that's Jewish believers in Jesus, contended with him, 
saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. So when Peter gets back from preaching the gospel around Israel to the Jerusalem church, there's some ethnically Jewish Christians who confront him and say, what are you doing? We, we've heard that you've been eating with unclean men, with Gentiles, uncircumcised dudes. The law forbids this. You see, the issue of who you ate with was especially significant to any Jew because a typical Jewish meal would include some type of bread that would be dipped in a big pot of stew and the stew would sort of be in the middle of the table it would be shared among all the guests so yes there's significant double dipping going on in this situation and, and everybody knew this and it was actually a, a cultural sign of unity so culturally when, when you ate with somebody and you had them in your home or you shared a meal with them you were stating that you shared a, a certain level of unity with them so if you weren't a Jew, then under the law, you were unclean. And the last thing a Jew would want to do is have any type of unity with anyone who was unclean under the law because they thought, well, well you might make me unclean too. So when Peter gets back to Jerusalem, the, the Jewish believers there are, are horrified to hear that he's been breaking bread with Gentiles, unclean men, and in so doing, making himself unclean. Verse 4, but Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I, I saw a vision, an object descending, coming down from the heavens, like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. So here's the idea. Peter, Peter's there, he's praying, and suddenly he's, he's in this trance. He's having a vision, and in his vision, this giant sheet comes down in front of him, and inside this sheet is basically all kinds of animals that would be unclean under the law, under the Jewish law. If it's unclean, it's there. Verse 7, he says, And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Some translations will render it a little better and say something like, what God has called clean, do not call unclean. You see, God was reminding Peter that he was the one who determined what was clean and what was unclean. And if he called something clean, then it was clean, even if it had been considered unclean previously. And as we shall see, Peter's vision is really about people. It's not about food. Verse 10, he says, now this was done three times. It happened three times. And then all of them were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, as his vision is ending, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me. They say, we need you to come with us. And the Holy Spirit tells Peter, go with them. And it says, and we entered the man's house, the man that they worked for. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. 
Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? So here's what's going on. Peter says, these guys show up. God has told them to come and find me. God tells me to go with them. I go to the house of this guy. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. I share the gospel with him. He puts his faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit falls on him and his whole family. They're all saved. It's obvious. I didn't expect it, but, but what could I do? I had to stand back and say, if this is what God is doing, then this is what God is doing. Verse 18 when they, that's the Jewish believers in Jerusalem he's sharing this with, I love this verse. When they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. I just love that response from them. They just say, well, you shared the gospel and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were saved. So, yeah, I guess this is what God is doing now. The Gentiles can be saved too. Cool. So God gave Peter a vision and then God gave Peter this undeniable personal experience with this family in Caesarea to help Peter understand that the gospel was for Jews and for the Gentiles as well. The Lord wanted Peter to understand that no one was made right with God. No one was made clean by the law. Both Jews and Gentiles alike were made righteous by placing their faith in Jesus as their savior. So would you write this on your outlines? In the church, the path to God no longer ran through Judaism, it ran through Jesus. In the church, the path to God no longer ran through Judaism, it ran through Jesus. The scriptures say that Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus himself said he didn't come to abolish the law, he fulfilled it, he completed it. He closed that whole chapter of the Old Testament and it all comes together in Jesus. And so the idea is that if anyone was truly Jewish and loved the Lord, they would simply follow Jesus and he's the one they would follow rather than following the law. Now, that was the whole idea. And then in Acts 15, we had the account of the Jerusalem Council that we talked about last week, but it's worth quickly revisiting. So just flip ahead to Acts 15 if you're still there. And we'll just pick it up in verse six of Acts 15. This is Peter's speech. He's addressing the council about this issue of do Gentiles basically need to become Jews in order to be saved, in order to become Christians. And when Peter stands up, he's clearly been so affected by all the events, the vision and the household in Caesarea. He's been so changed by that that by the time we reach Acts 15, he stands up in Acts 15 verse 6 and this is what happens. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about that experience in Caesarea. He's saying, you guys remember this. God chose me, told me to take the gospel and preach it to some of the Gentiles in the area, and God saved them. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. And God made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. 
He says, you, you guys know God is saving the Gentiles the same way he's saving the Jews, through faith in Jesus. So now why are you trying to get them to go back under the law when it didn't work for you, didn't work for our forefathers? Why are you trying to get the Gentiles to try something that didn't work for us? They're saved by faith just like we are. So he, Peter would seem to be solidly on board. Peter gets this, right? You're saved by faith in Jesus, not by your works. Settled issue. Well, not really. And that's going to be the source of this confrontation between Paul and Peter. So now let's get into the text in Galatians. You can flip to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up in verse 11. Galatians 2.11, we read this. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, so a short while after the Jerusalem council, Peter makes the journey from Jerusalem to visit Paul and Barnabas and the guys up north in Antioch. And this tense exchange takes place between Peter and Paul. Paul writes, I withstood him to his face. Paul says, I got up in Peter's face. I got all up in his face and I opposed him. Why? Well, let's keep reading. Because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, fearing those Jewish Christians. So when Peter first comes up by himself to Antioch, where there's Gentiles and Jews all together in this church as one, he was chill. Peter was cool. He was eating with the believers who came from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. He's laughing at the jokes about how great bacon is. He's eating pork chops with all the guys at the weekly potluck, just having a great time eating whatever's served to him. Because in the church, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's this new thing, a Christian. And in the church, we're all made clean by Jesus. So when Peter gets up to Antioch, he's just enjoying fellowship, enjoying hanging out with everybody in the church there, no matter what their background is, as it should be in the church. But then, some Judaizers, claiming to be sent by James and the Jerusalem church, they really weren't, but they claimed they were, they also made their way up to Antioch. And I think we can assume that despite the events of the Jerusalem Council, these Judaizers were still having a significant effect on the church in Jerusalem. And I say that because we just read that as soon as they showed up in Antioch, Peter stopped associating with the believers who came from Gentile backgrounds because he feared the Judaizers. He feared not having their approval. I think firstly, it's mind-blowing that after everything Peter had been through, Regarding this exact issue, the events of Acts 11 and Acts 15 we just read about, despite being the head of the Jerusalem church for about two decades at this point, despite being the most prominent Jewish apostle in the world, here's Peter reverting back to form, being afraid of men, craving their approval, and retreating back to the worst parts of himself and the worst parts of his Jewish cultural upbringing. It's shocking. We'll talk more about that later. But secondly, if you put yourself in this situation, can you imagine how hurtful this would have been for the Gentile believers in Antioch? Peter suddenly shifts to treating them like, like they're unclean. He's ghosting them, as we would say today. He doesn't talk to them. He doesn't eat with them. He doesn't associate with them in any way. They would have been deeply hurt. Peter's the head of the Jerusalem church, the, the real center of Christianity at this time. They would have been hurt, but they also would have been dismayed. 
Because as Gentile believers, they were rock solid in their understanding that salvation was by faith. They had received the teaching from Paul and they knew it. And what Peter was doing by siding with the Judaizers meant that by implication, he was opposing the teaching that Paul had been giving the church in Antioch, which means Peter was in sin and the Gentile believers in Antioch all knew it. So this, this is a bad situation. This is a bad situation. So write this down. By implication, Peter's actions affirmed salvation by the law rather than salvation by grace. By associating with the Judaizers, Peter was saying, yeah, you know, there's something to this. You, you probably do need to be saved by the law or you need to go back under the law if you really want to be saved. In verse 13, it says, and the rest of the Jews, the rest of the Jewish believers in Antioch also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So the other Jewish believers who were in Antioch, they quickly follow Peter's example and they began to separate themselves from the Gentile believers who were among them that they had been friends with just a week earlier. Even Barnabas gets caught up in the hypocrisy and don't forget that Barnabas along with Paul, was one of the main pastors in Antioch. So think about the effect this would have had on the congregation. You've basically got two of your main pastors, the two most prominent pastors in your church, teaching different things, and, and the church is being divided. This is a bad situation. But on the personal side, Barnabas was also one of Paul's oldest and dearest friends. He had labored with Paul in the ministry, he was the one who came and found Paul and brought him to Antioch. And, and their relationship was precious. And now all of a sudden, Barnabas is siding with guys who are basically calling Paul a liar, saying that Paul is not teaching the truth. And that would have deeply hurt Paul. And I think it's very possible that their relationship never fully recovers. And that leads to some division in Acts 15 that you can read about on your own. So the Antioch church was being divided by this false teaching that to be a believer, you needed to live like a Jew. It was causing the Jewish believers to refuse to associate with any men in the church who weren't circumcised. The Antioch church, which had been the model of Jewish Gentile harmony, had been fractured almost overnight. Unsurprisingly, Paul had a few things to say about this. Verse 14, Paul says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward, would you underline straightforward about the truth of the gospel? And I love that word, straightforward. I love it even more that Paul uses it to describe the gospel because what he's saying is he's saying the gospel is straightforward. In other words, the gospel is not complicated. It doesn't have sections and subsections and you don't need years of schooling to understand the gospel. A child can understand the gospel. And what Paul was so upset about was that these men, the Judaizers, were trying to add to the gospel. They were trying to complicate the gospel. They were claiming that there was more to it than just putting your faith in Jesus. They were preaching what we call the Jesus and gospel. And Paul says, that's a load of baloney, baloney. Vocabulary is important. And so he says, I said to Peter before all of them. So he doesn't just grab Peter and say, can I have a quick word in private? This is a situation where everyone needs to hear what's being said because everyone needed to be on the same page. Peter's sin was affecting the whole congregation. And so his correction needed to be witnessed by the whole congregation. 
If a public sin is corrected privately, it creates the perception that the church doesn't take sin seriously or that the church approves of it. This is why Augustine said, it is not advantageous to correct in secret an error which occurred publicly. And so Paul seems to, based on the text, either from the pulpit during a service or in the middle of one of these potlucks where the whole church is there, calls out, Peter! You imagine the scene cinematically in my head, there's like a DJ and suddenly the record goes like, and there's like dead silence. Peter's like, huh? Paul walks over to him and Peter stands up and Paul looks right at him and he starts speaking loud enough for everyone to hear. Nobody is, nobody's cutting their food. Everyone is like perfectly still. Parents have their hands over their kids' mouths and everyone's like, what is about to go down? These guys are about to wrestle this out right now. That's what they think is gonna happen. And then Paul begins to address Peter and he says, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? He's saying, Peter, you're a Jew and a few days ago, You were enjoying some bacon burgers just like the rest of us here in Antioch. You were living like you were free from the law because you are. You're an ethnic Jew, but you don't even follow the law. So why are you suddenly now Mr. Kosher and refusing to eat with these Gentiles? Why are you trying to get them to follow the law? Why are you being a hypocrite, Peter? Tension, right, in the room. Then he goes on and he says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Underline this last part, and I'll explain what he just said. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be saved. That last phrase is so, so important. Paul says explicitly that that when we reach the end of this world, when we reach the final judgment at the end of everything, there's going to be no one who is made righteous by the law. So God's gonna open this book and he's gonna say, okay, let's take a look at the list of people who were good enough to earn their way to heaven without needing Jesus. There's gonna be two blank pages. That's what Paul is saying here. There's nobody on that list. No exceptions. End of discussions. Even back in the Old Testament, David, the psalmist, wrote, in your sight, no one living is righteous. So write this down. No one ever has or ever will earn their salvation by works. No one ever has or ever will earn their salvation by works. You can't do it. This is what Paul is saying, even though that text is a little bit hard to understand. He's saying, Peter, we're Jews. You and me, we're Jews. We're well acquainted with the law. We were raised in it. And despite that, you and I have put our faith in Jesus to save us because we know that the law can't save us. Being Jewish didn't save us. And if the law can't save a Jew, Peter, why would you think it can save a Gentile? The truth is we both know that the law can't save anybody. Can't save anybody. Then he goes on in verse 17 and he says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. So this verse is a bit vague. I want to be honest about that. And I read multiple commentaries on it and they all said, even the Greek experts struggle to understand it, but but this is what they think Paul is getting at. He seems to be saying to his his Jewish brothers, 
He's saying, you guys are claiming that eating with uncircumcised men makes you unclean, and therefore it's a sin. But Peter, what about all the things that Jesus himself taught? Like how, how nothing that enters a man can contaminate him, only what comes out of a man. Or what about the fact that Jesus ate with sinners, Peter? What about all of Jesus' teachings about unity in the church and his great high priestly prayer in which his prayer was that all of us in the church would be one as he and the Father are one? If what you're claiming is true, Peter, if eating with unclean men is a sin, then what you're saying is that Jesus himself encouraged us to sin. So let me ask you, Peter, is Jesus a minister of sin? Was Jesus going around promoting sin? And so Paul makes the point devastatingly that Peter has to choose between believing what Jesus says or believing what the Judaizers say and calling Jesus a liar and a minister of sin. That's your choice, Peter. What's it going to be? Is Jesus a minister of sin or was Jesus telling the truth and the Judaizers are wrong? I don't know how you would ever win an argument with Paul. This guy is too good. Verse 18, he says, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. So he says to his Jewish brothers, Guys, faith is what makes you righteous. It's moving back under the law that makes you back into a sinner. If we return to living under the law, then we put ourselves back at square one. We're no longer covered by the blood of Jesus. We're just trying to earn our salvation again, which we already know is pointless. As a believer, even if you believe that you're saved by Jesus, going back and trying to live by the Old Testament law doesn't make you more saved. It doesn't make you super saved. It just makes you a hopeless sinner all over again. For those of you that can remember, the Bible says that when Jesus died, the veil, this giant thick curtain in the temple which separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, tore in two. So there was this section right in the middle of the temple where the literal presence of God would be. And the high priest could only go in once a year to make a sacrifice. And he would have to be ceremonially clean. And if you guys know the story, you know he would have bells on his garments. They'd often tie a rope around his legs. Because if he went in there and he wasn't properly ceremonially clean, he'd just die. And they'd hear the bells hit the ground, and then they could pull the rope and like pull the body out. Because if anybody else went in there, they'd be dead. Not a great job, because that's how intense the presence of God was. So they had this really thick curtain. It was so thick that if if you fell into it, you wouldn't fall into the Holy of Holies. You'd just bounce off the curtain, because they didn't want to risk anything. The Bible says the moment Jesus died on the cross, supernaturally, but literally, that curtain tore in two from top to bottom. Because what had happened was... Jesus had paid for every sin ever committed, which means that anyone who put their faith in Jesus could now come into the presence of God. They didn't have to fear because God had made them clean. Their sins had been paid for. But here's what's interesting. The temple isn't destroyed till 70 AD. Jesus dies around 32, 33 AD. So the temple is only destroyed decades later. Here's what we know from history. They resumed sacrifices the day after the the curtain tore in two, which means that they simply went back and sewed it up and continued on as if nothing had ever happened. And that's what we do every time we drift back into legalism. 
Every time as Christians we start acting and living like we're somehow saved or more saved by doing good works, by being a good person. When we decide that, that as a believer we've got to read this many chapters of the Bible a day, We've got to pray this many minutes a day. We've got to listen to only Christian music. We've got to vote for this political party. Anytime we add anything to the straightforward gospel, Paul says all we do is we make ourselves transgressors. In other words, we condemn ourselves. We put standards on ourselves that we can't possibly live up to. And the result is we feel condemned. We feel ashamed. We feel guilty because we've put standards on us that God isn't even putting on us. And those things that I listed, they're all good things. None of them are bad things, but they're not what saves you. Those are things we do because we love God. We want to know Him more. We want to enjoy fellowship with Him. We want to have the fullness of life that He offers to us. But they don't save us. They don't make us more saved. We're not like the Scientologists where there are like multiple ranks, you know. There's just Christians, people who are saved by Jesus. They're privileges, they're not obligations. So don't be weighed down by guilt and shame over what you don't do, what you fail to do. Rather be full of joy and enjoy the things that you get to do. Look forward to your time with the Lord instead of looking back and feeling condemned and guilty about the time with the Lord you didn't have. God's not condemning you. Rather look forward to the time that you're going to have, that you can have. Write this down, when we live under legalism, all we do is heap condemnation upon ourselves. All we do is heap condemnation upon ourselves. And we've said many times before, that happens because we love legalism, don't we? I mean, we'd, we'd love it if I would just tell you, like, guys, here's what you need to do to be a Christian. This many chapters of the Bible a day, this many minutes in prayer would be like, oh, good. I can put those on my to-do list, do them, and then know that I'm a good person. Oh, that'll be so good. But God says, I'm, I'm not looking to be a checklist for you. I'm looking to have a relationship with you. That's what he's looking for. Verse 19, Paul says, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. Here's what he's saying. When you live under the law, the law is your master. Your whole life isn't about living for the Lord. It's about living for the law. It's about obeying the rules, doing this and not doing that. We couldn't keep the law, so we were found guilty. And the punishment we deserve, death, was given as the sentence. The good news is that Jesus took the death sentence that the law gave us. So the law has already killed us. We've died to the law at the hands of the law because Jesus died in our place. Our dealings with the law are finished. And here's what that means. You can't do business with a dead man. You can't do business with a dead woman. We've got no more relationship, no more business with the law. And Paul says, now that I'm dead to the law, now I can actually live for God. He's my master. He's my focus. He's what I'm living for. If you're into legalism, you're not really living for the Lord. You're living for rules and regulations. But God wants you to live for him. He wants you to live for him. Make a note of this. You can live for the law or you can live for the Lord but you cannot live for both. You cannot live for both. You can live for the law or you can live for the Lord. And then we get to this most precious of verses. And if you don't, you need to have all of verse 20 underlined in your Bibles. This is one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. 
Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You can feel the the change in the way that he's talking to Peter. He had to deal with it, but now he's saying this, and Peter, I, I would imagine, is just falling apart emotionally. He says, Peter, my sin nature was put to death along with Jesus on the cross. And because Jesus rose from the dead, he now lives in me. I have a spirit in me, Peter. And the only reason I'm alive today, the only reason I will be alive forever with the Lord is because I've put my faith in what he's done for me. I've put my faith in his love for me and his sacrifice for me. The law killed me, Peter. And the law killed you too. But we're alive forever because Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Don't ever forget that, Peter. Romans 7 says, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. When we placed our faith in Jesus as our Savior, our old self, our old spirit, was replaced with the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be born again. And that's what Paul means when he says, Christ lives in me. You see, legalism fails because legalism says, I will turn myself into Christ. That's what legalism says. The gospel says, Christ will give his Spirit to you. He'll give his Spirit to you. Part of the great peace that the gospel brings is the realization that Christ lives in me. His presence does not come and go based on my behavior or my performance. He never leaves me. He never forsakes me. Christ lives, really get this, he permanently dwells. He is made a forever home in me. How is that possible? Because of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I love the gospel. There's nothing like it. And you might think you get that, but here's how you know when you get this. You know you understand that Christ lives in you when you stop praying and asking God to be with you because you understand that he always is. He's never left. He's never left. If you need to pray something, pray, Father, help me to remember that you are always with me. Help me to be aware of your nearness, aware of your presence. But you don't need to pray for God to be with you because if you put your faith in him, he is in you always. He never leaves. Then verse 21, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God for, and then underline the rest of verse 21, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. He died for nothing. Peter, if you hold to the teaching of the Judaizers, if you stand with those who believe that you can be made right with God by the law, then you nullify the death of Jesus. You make it meaningless. You make it unnecessary. You make it pointless. And that would have hit Peter like a ton of bricks. That verse is so important because it speaks to both doctrine and apologetics. Regarding doctrine, Paul points out that if the law could save anyone, 
If it were actually possible to earn your salvation through good works, then God the Father flat out ignored the cries of His only begotten Son, Jesus, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of His arrest, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What Jesus was praying is He was praying, Father, if there's any other way to save humanity, please don't make me go through with this. That's what Jesus was praying. And Paul points out that if people could have been saved by the law, then that would mean there was another way, which means Jesus' death would have been completely unnecessary, and his supposedly loving Father in heaven would have just ignored his prayers and sent him to the cross when he didn't need to. We know that the truth is Jesus went to the cross because there was no other way. The law couldn't save anyone. Would you write this down? If there was any way besides the cross for people to be made right with God, then Jesus' death would be meaningless and unnecessary. If there was any other way, his death would be meaningless and unnecessary. You can probably see where we're going. Regarding apologetics, those who say there's more than one way to be saved, more than one way to heaven, more than one way to get to God, without realizing it, they are claiming the same thing, that Jesus died in vain. If you could be saved by good works or by following some other religion's set of laws, then Jesus didn't need to die. His death was unnecessary. And again, you'd have a scenario where Jesus died for nothing and his heavenly Father sent him to the cross for no reason. Paul says if righteousness comes through the law or any other belief system, then Christ died in vain. This is where you get the famous argument where people say, listen, for for those who would say, oh, there's many different ways to get to God. That doesn't work with Christianity. It's incompatible because Jesus is famously a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord because he claimed to be God. So either he was lying and he wasn't God, in which case his death was meaningless, right? He was a delusion. He was a very evil man. If he's lying, he's just a cult leader. He's deceiving people. There's nothing good about that. Well, maybe he actually believed it, but he was out of his mind. In which case, he's a lunatic. He's not a good man. He shouldn't be followed. He's just crazy. Or he's telling the truth and he really is God. And he's the only way to be saved. Those are really the only three options. Jesus is either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he is who he says he is. But there's no room for this nonsense that he's one way out of many ways. If he's one way out of many ways, then his death was completely unnecessary. It doesn't make any kind of sense. We know that Peter accepted Paul's correction because it's here in the Bible, in Galatians. But we also know this because years later, Peter writes his second epistle called Second Peter in your Bibles. And he was writing to an ethnically Jewish audience and he closes his second epistle by affirming the wisdom of the Apostle Paul affirming the wisdom of the Apostle Paul. He also says, to paraphrase, he says, I hear you guys have read some of Paul's writings. Yeah, good luck with that. It's pretty heavy stuff. And it's worth noting that Peter affirms Paul's wisdom. And and just please know, I feel like I have to say this by this point, I, I don't seek out to make trouble with any other belief system. But we have to point out the fact that the Catholic Church is built on the teaching that Peter was the first pope. And to this day, 
The Catholic Church teaches that popes are infallible. They cannot make a mistake when it comes to issues of church doctrine and church practice. That was disproved when Paul got up in the face of the guy the Catholic Church says was the first pope and corrected him, and he received the correction from Paul. And it's disproved by the Scriptures to this day. Peter was wrong about his doctrine, and Peter fell back into sin and cowardice despite being the leader of the Jerusalem church for 20 years at this point. This was long after his famous sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where 3,000 men responded to the gospel. Unbiblical theology, heresy, blasphemy, it has to be confronted. Doesn't matter how important the person is, doesn't matter what position they hold, there's no room for it in the church. Bad doctrine, bad theology has to be confronted. No one gets a pass, not even the pope. Peter, as we said, he had been the leader of the Jerusalem church for 20 years. He was the most prominent of the Jerusalem apostles. He was one of the three disciples who were closest to Jesus. Peter had received visions. He had seen God pour out his spirit on the Gentiles. He had taught others at the Jerusalem council that there was no reason for the Gentiles to be brought under the law. And yet Peter still fell back into his old sinful habit having his behavior dictated by his fear of being approved or disapproved by other people. He had this fear of men, just as he did when he cursed Jesus and denied even knowing him when he was quizzed by a little servant girl on the night Jesus was arrested. Peter feared not having the approval of the Judaizers. Isn't that amazing? It just hits me. You're the head of the Jerusalem church. (laughs) You're like the most important apostle in the world, And yet you embrace bad doctrine because you want these guys, when it all comes down to it, to think you're cool. You want them to think you're cool. That's why he does it. And it tells us a lot about how easy it is to fall back into all of our old sins, our old flaws, our old biases. But none of us really judge Peter for that, do we? Now we we love Peter, don't we? Because we identify with him. We identify with failing even decades after we should have learned our lesson. We identify with taking much longer to grow and change than we thought we would. We identify with struggling with sins and issues we thought we'd be done with years ago. That's why we love Peter. But we shouldn't just love him because his screw-ups make us feel better about our screw-ups. If that's the only reason we love him, it's still kind of hopeless and a discouraging situation. I may be a screw-up, but so was Peter. Okay, that's great. But here's why we should love Peter. And here's why we should be encouraged by Peter. This is what hits me. That whole time, across those 20 years of screw-ups, lapses into sin and fear, doctrinal mishaps slow growth, across all of those years, and for the rest of his life, God works through Peter. He works through him. He uses him to minister and to change lives that whole time. He's leading the Jerusalem church that whole time. You see, I think that God can't or won't use me in any meaningful way until I achieve total victory over my personal issues and my sin struggles. 
That's what I think. I think God is up there and he's like, Jeff, I, I got stuff I want to do through you, but you need to have total victory over this before I can do that. When you've done that, come back and we'll talk again. But that's not true. God can do both. He can use me for his glory while he works on my character with grace and patience. That's what he did in Peter's life. That's what he wants to do in your life. That's what he wants to do in my life. It's never the Lord who whispers to you, God can't use you. He can't use you yet. It's the enemy. The law says, well, well, I can't even approach God until I'm totally free from sin. The law says there's this curtain up between you and God. And until you get yourself together, you better not even try and peek behind that curtain. That's what the law says. you got to be free from sin before you approach God. But here's what we forget. We are. We are. We are totally free from sin. We have the righteousness of Jesus. And so from God's perspective, we're ready for service. We're ready for service. The Lord isn't looking to work through. He's not looking to minister through perfect people. He's looking for willing people. He's looking for people who, like Peter, will just keep showing up and pray, here I am, Lord, I'm available for service however you want to use me. That's what God is looking for. And Peter's most enduring characteristic, in my opinion, is that he just keeps showing up. He just keeps showing up. You know, he gets dressed down by Paul and he repents. I don't know that I would have done that. I would have been like, um, I seem to go to the bathroom real quick and I think I would have hopped on a horse and left the country and prayed to God I never bumped into anyone from Antioch ever again in my life, changed my name and grown a mustache. That's probably what I would have wanted to do. But, but Peter, Peter just keeps showing up. He says, okay, this, this is right. God's doing something in my life. I'm going to learn the lesson, and we'll go for it. Then he makes another mistake. He gets up again. He keeps going. He just keeps showing up, and God keeps using him. He's like, God, I'm still here. If you want to do something, I'm available. And God keeps using him. Write this down. Peter's life reminds us that the Lord isn't looking for perfect people. He's looking for people who are willing to be available. He's looking for people who are willing to be available. I'll just share one more thing because it blessed me preparing this and I think it'll bless you too. The Greek term behind the word for hypocrisy refers to an actor who would wear a mask to play a part as they would in classical Greek theater. The idea is a hypocrite was someone who was masking their true self. That's how they get the tie in there. Peter, Paul told him, was not acting in accordance with his true self. His true self was the spirit of Jesus. And the same is true of you and I. And there's an encouragement in here I want you to understand. In our worst moments of hypocrisy, our worst moments of hypocrisy, we're not revealing who we really are. We're failing to act in accordance with who we really are. That's why we're being a hypocrite. You see, sanctification, God's work in our lives, is not about us becoming someone else slowly. That's not what sanctification is. Sanctification is the process of us becoming who we truly are. 
the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God has already given you and I His Spirit. Sanctification is the process of us slowly becoming who we really are in the deepest part of us, the Spirit that God has put inside of us. And when we arrive in the presence of Jesus one day, all the hypocrisy, all the masks that have covered who we really are in Jesus are going to be stripped away. And as the Word says, when Jesus is revealed, we shall be like Him. We will be like Him. When I fail, when I fall into sin, it's not that I'm revealing who I really am. It's that I'm simply failing to act in accordance with who I really am. If you belong to Jesus, your lapses into sin are moments of hypocrisy only because that's not who you really are. That's not who you truly are. So don't ever take on a label for yourself that is not who you truly are. Don't take on a label. This is why I I don't like it when addicts go the rest of their life identifying themselves as addicts because you're taking on a label that's not who you truly are. This is why it's not good to identify yourself as a failure or anything that's not in line with who you truly are. You want an identity? You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. That is your identity. That's who you truly are. And we're going to have a lot of issues along the way. We're going to be hypocrites a lot of the time while we're on this earth. But who we truly are is a son of God, a daughter of God. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in this body, I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? We're going to pray together and I want to encourage you. We're going to have a time of worship and reflection and it's going to be such a good opportunity for you to let God sink these things into your soul. So I'm going to encourage you as we take this time to ask the Lord, say, God, would you, would you take this from my head and move it down into my heart? Let me really get this. Let me really understand this. Let me really grasp the reality that you're with me always because your spirit is in me. Would you help me understand that, that my failings and my issues are not who I truly am, that you've made me something new. And would you help me live for that rather than the false identities, rather than the masks that I struggle with day to day. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for making it clear to us. Thank you for revealing to us how much you love us. Thank you for the hope that your word gives us. Father, we just offer our lives to you again. We welcome the work of your Spirit in us. Help us to be like Peter. If you need to set us straight about something, help us to receive that correction and help us to keep showing up, knowing that you love to use. You love to use and work through people who have issues. You love it, Lord, because you get all the glory. So our prayer is simply, would you bring glory to yourself through us? in the way that you work through us to show your love to the people around us. Help us to serve you by serving them. Help us to love you by loving them, Jesus.
Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.